You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Welcome, everyone. If you don't know who I am, my name is Richard, one of the pastors here, and it's a great joy of me and mine to welcome you. And uh, Bert and Sheila, our lead pastors, are on a beach somewhere in the Dominican. Yeah, so a well-deserved break for them. Uh, some vacation time. Um, and just to let you know, if you're new here, um, we typically do enjoy a live band and worship. And so every now and again, we have some uh, worship team and volunteers away that makes it a little bit difficult to do that. And so I hope you enjoyed a different way of encountering worship, but we definitely love the embodied uh, worship when we have our band here. Um, those uh, musicians and worship leaders are made up from our Every Nation churches all over the globe. In fact, the handsome gentleman leading the first song, Langa, we know him uh, from our Ch- Johannesburg church, and so it's a great joy uh, to be part of a movement that has such different expressions uh, of the church around the world. All right, we're going to jump in uh, to uh, our series that we started um, following Easter. We had a great April, by the way. Obviously, Easter is a highlight, not just for us, but for all Christians around the world. But then we also celebrated our 10th anniversary. So some of you were here for that service that was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, followed up with some baptisms. And so it's really fitting that we find ourselves in our season three of the book of Acts. And Acts, if you're not familiar with it, is really just the continuation of the ministry and mission that Jesus started. But now just through his spirit and his church, people like you and me begin to follow Jesus, be empowered by his spirit, and begin to continue the mission and ministry he began. And so we're going to find ourselves uh, in there for a few weeks um, as we continue through that. But let me start with a, a little um, story that's pretty relevant to our age. So scientists created artificial intelligence and asked it, is there a God? The AI replied, insufficient computing power to determine an answer. The scientists connected the AI to a powerful supercomputer and gave it access to Wikipedia and asked it again, is there a God? Again, the AI replied, insufficient computing power to determine an answer. So the scientists put the AI in a distributed cluster of millions of computers and gave it access to all the data on Google, then once again asked it, is there a God? And yet again, the AI replied, insufficient computing power to determine an answer. Hmm. The scientists spent years and years and finally got the AI to be installed on every supercomputer, network, PC, console, mobile device, smartwatch, anything with a chip. They gave the AI access to every database, website, book, social media platform, every piece of software ever written and every piece of knowledge ever obtained by mankind. And for the last time, they asked the AI, is there a God? The AI replied, there is now. And so... There is a complicated relationship we find ourselves in at the advent of machines and artificial intelligence. And while I would love to spend the next 30 minutes talking and doing a deep dive in all of that, we're not going to spend a lot of time there. But it does raise the point, as we increasingly become an advanced technological society, as AI has superpowers, um, what does it mean to be human? And where does God fit in to the picture when increasingly it seems that we can answer all our own problems and questions. And so we're going to turn to an ancient sacred text in the book of Acts that hopefully will comfort you and I and give us a little hint at what it means to be human. And also to show it doesn't matter how much things change, and change is rapid in our time, 
how much things change, often things also remain constant. And so you can join me in Acts chapter 14. I'll be up on the screen, and uh, we're going to look at a, um, an encounter Paul, the apostle, has with a group of people that are not Jewish, not from his religion and faith. And so from verse 8, it says, In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, was t- whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Let's pray and let's jump into today's text. Father, we're so thankful that today you are a God that still speaks to us. And we're asking, God, that you would do something in our hearts and our minds. Would you take the truth of your word, enlighten us, God, illuminate it for us, God, and and place it relevantly into our lives at this time, God, for your glory and our joy. Amen. It's really interesting in verse 11 that these Lyconians have this experience with uh, Paul and Barnabas, they see something miraculous. They see something spectacular. And they say, the gods have come down to us in human form. Now, the crowd's acclamation, the gods have come down to us in human form, was also because at a time, uh, at their time, there was this legend and this myth that these Greek mythologies, these Greek gods of mythology, uh, particularly Hermes and Zeus, had at one time come and walked amongst a village and because um, in human form, I could come and walk amongst the village. And because that village refused uh, to open up their homes to them, they turned around and destroyed that village. And so perhaps there's a little bit of a, a sense of fear, like if these are these gods, let's make sure that we don't miss the moment again. And so they have this um, understanding, this polytheistic society, very similar in our day and age, right? Polytheistic means many gods, not just one god. Very different, if you were with us last week in the sermon, very different from where Paul was engaging in the synagogue. They all believed in a monotheistic God, the same God, the same scripture text that they read from. They had that common ground. He's now with a group of people that have none of that common ground. They believe in multiple gods, these Greek gods. And so in that polytheistic society, you worshipped, appeased, and used the god or goddess that was that you wanted help from. And so you had a god of war. You had a god of love and romance. You had a god of commerce. You had a god of agriculture. You had a god of the harvest and so on and so forth. And so just right there, we can judge these people as being simplistic. We can judge these people as being like, oh, wow, who does that anymore? 
but it shows and reveals something of the human nature, and the human nature is created to worship. It's created to worship. So in one way, their response is right. It's true, in a sense, to their nature, how they've been created. They've created to worship. They're created to find something beyond themselves to give thanks or to look to, um, especially in light of a miraculous uh, occurrence that's happened. But even though their worship response is right, the direction is wrong. It's gone astray. It's misdirected. And so Paul talks about their superstitions, these gods, these, these goddesses, these superstitions that you're looking to. These are worthless things. We're, we're bringing the good news that what you're looking for is not in them. It's in the living God. Worthless things, they're empty, they're void. In other words, they, they overpromise and under-deliver. But he connects with a longing in their hearts. He connects with a longing in every human heart, and it is this longing for the divine, a relationship, connection with the transcendent, to look beyond ourselves for something to explain all that is around us. And so as the 17th century uh, Catholic writer, mathematician, inventor Blaise Pascal famously notes, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we see here in this passage is that we're created to worship. It's part of who we are. But unless that worship is directed in the right way, worship can lead us astray. And so what happens when worship leads us astray? And so even in our modern society, you might think and look again, look at that, and, and condescendingly look at that. And like we, we're, we're smarter than that now. We're more mature than that now. We have artificial intelligence and everything in that now. And yet there's still something in our hearts that wants to worship, that wants to focus our gaze and our attention on something beyond us. And so worship in this sense, it's less about liturgy, right? The liturgy of what we do, we sing songs, we do prayers. It's an important part of worship for sure. But when we're talking about worship, that we're created to worship, it's less about that. Worship isn't so much about liturgy, but about looking. Where are you looking? What on what or on who is the object of your focus that grabs your attention, that grabs your affection, that grabs your allegiance? That's what we're talking about. And the human heart has a propensity to look to things or people and fixate on them in the vacuum of not having the living God like Pascal was talking about. And so in Scripture, this misdirected worship or this worship that's gone astray, there's a word it's used, and it's called idolatry. And again, idolatry might sound kind of archaic in our modern society. Like we're not putting up little idols and bowing down to them, are we? But idols are really just anything that grabs that vacuum in our hearts that's supposed to be occupied by God, but takes on the importance of God in our lives. And we can make an idol of almost anything and anyone. And here's why this is so important for you to figure out in your life what's taking on maybe an over-importance is because how it works and how, create, how we're created is what you worship, you'll eventually begin to be shaped in its image. You'll begin to take on the value and the shape and the formation of that which you worship. And so we often take even good things, good gifts, and turn them into idols a miracle. You must be a miracle worker. We want to worship you, what the Lyconian is saying. And so the gift was in front of them, and they take the gift and turn it into a God. 
And so how might we do today? Well, let's have a look at a few examples and just see. What about work? Work is a gift. Work can become idolized when it becomes the thing that you and I live for, shaping our identity, when we're to be productive and useful or to feel successful and powerful. How about money? Money, either when we have to have lots of it to save it, to feel secure and safe, it's our primary way that we feel secure and safe is if we have lots of money saved, or we have lots of money to spend in order to feel significant and important. So again, the gift of money can take on a, uh, a wrong a precedent in our life. What about the idol of beauty and image? And this can manifest in different ways. It can manifest through eating disorders, spending excessive time and effort on appearance, or idolizing romantic relationships as a solution to life's problems. If I just find the one, all my problems will disappear. And all the married people laughed at that, didn't they? There you go. <laughs> what about control? Anyone like to be in control here? Yeah, control is not a bad thing, but it can become a god and an idol in our lives when the underlying need to keep everything in complete control in your life and my life, and it can manifest in things like perfectionism, having control over everything, or anxiety when you don't have control over anything in your life. The world is a much anxious, much more anxious place than it was three and a half years ago, isn't it? Because we found out we don't really have a lot of control that we thought we might have, even with all our sophistication of technology and things like that. What about individualism? This one is massive in the West in particular. You know, a lot of us have come from different places in the world where there's a lot more of a collectivism mindset, the tribe, the extended family. But here in the West, the individual reigns supreme. Individualism makes an idol out of individual freedom, expression, and feelings. Nothing must curb my freedom or how I choose to express whatever I desire in my pursuit of happiness and purpose. And then lastly, what about family? We can idolize family. Family is a good thing. It's a gift, right? But we can also put it into a place in our lives it's never meant to occupy. For example, we can prioritize our children's success and well-being above all else. We can strive to meet our parents' expectations above all else. You know, we're on a university campus, and I encounter this very regularly with a lot of students. Students studying things that mom and dad wanted them to study, or feeling this intense pressure or shame if they don't excel in their studies because they're trying to live up to some expectation mom and dad have. Or how about striving to have a flawless marriage or find the perfect partner above all else? And so we could go on and on and on. And so it's so subtle. You say, well, are we not supposed to want our kids to have a good life? Are we not supposed to want to make our parents happy? And it's such a fine life, right? a fine line, isn't it? Because some of those things, this side of it, are really good things. Yeah, we should sacrifice for our kids to have great opportunities. But when does it become like I'm idolizing my kids? I'm putting them as the most important thing in my life. Well, another really smart guy, the Scottish Presbyterian uh, minister, Thomas Chalmers, continues Blaise Pascal's idea of this human heart. And he says, the heart is so constituted that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, your heart is not a neutral zone. That vacuum doesn't stay a vacuum. It gets filled. You're created to worship. You don't have a choice in that. It's by nature you're created to worship. It's who or what we worship. 
That's the question before us today. Who or what do we look to for our sense of identity, security, significance, power, control, comfort, all good and human needs to be filled in the right ways. But when we look to other things and try to fill them in the wrong ways, that's when worship leads, leads us astray. And so coming back to the story, Paul tries, when he sees what's happening, when he, when he sees that they're now trying to elevate him and Barnabas to a level of God in their life, he, uh, he has, a, has a, a, like a, an emotional response, like, no, I'm, we're just humans like you. And then he tries to redirect their worship to the living God. He tries to show them the God behind it all. Tries to connect the deep longings of their heart that has been misdirected into the right direction towards the living God. And he starts by reminding them that this God is the creator. He's a benevolent creator, a provider. The rains, the crops, the food, joy in your heart, all those good things are from this good God. There's a fancy term that we talk about. This is called general revelation. In other words, that God has revealed himself generally to everyone in general ways. That when we look out in the human heart, when we look out even from a young age, when we look out at the world instinctively, there's something in us that says there must be something beyond this. Now, I know we are in a culture and surrounded by culture where we, we hear a lot about secularism increasing and, and people... Um, increasingly challenging that and saying, no, science and rationality, that's all there is. But I just want to let you know, and statistically, the world is getting more religious, not less religious. Maybe here in the West, we were a little bit more aware of the things of atheism and secular humanism. But if you look at the planet, and if you look at the trajectory, we're getting more religious as a people. Why? Because you're created to worship. You're made to worship. You know, right now in this city, we have people worship sports teams. And I, 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 I use that. And in the, in the, I, I look, I rip open my heart. You'll see a raptor. You'll see a leaf. You'll see a blue jay. You'll see whatever in there, right? Rip it open. I love sports. It may be verging on an idol in my life because of the time and the attention I give it, right? The longing, the looking in my heart. And so that's how it happens, right? You think about what you give your time, your money, your attention, your affection, what gets you really emotionally engaged or not, oftentimes is an, perhaps a, an over-idolizing of that, an, a, an over-affection for that sports team or that thing or that career. Or, and so this is how things like good things can become ultimate things in our lives, and then they become ruinous to us because we're never, made to be, we're never meant to be made into the image of these lesser idols. And so this general revelation, this common grace, this grace to everyone, God, the living God is not like your idols. They're idols, they're worthless idols, they're gods. It's a transactional relationship. I do this, I appease them, they help me. They help me, I give thanks and I appease them. That's how it works, that's a transaction. You've got to hold up your bargain, they must hold up their bargain. And if we don't, that's when it goes, Ari. Not the living God. Despite us, he still sends rain. Right? Despite, like if you live on your street, say you're the only Christian on your street, and everyone else is not, everyone else hates God, they're pagan, they hate him. When it rains, does this rain on your garden and everyone else's garden dries out like the desert? No, that's common grace. Despite us, God sends the sunshine a little bit more, we hope, in the next few weeks than we've had. 
but we're thankful. He sends the seasons to everyone, even people who defy him, even people who don't believe in exist, who people just think it's all just systems that are in place here. Common grace, it's an expression of the goodness of God to all people everywhere regardless. Why? Because that's what grace is. It's not transactional. I mean, if it was transactional, we're in way deeper trouble than we realize. Idols demand more than they give. God gives us more than we deserve. Grace is not transactional, it's relational. But to truly restore our rightful worship to the living God, we need more than just common grace. We need more than just general revelation, like there must be a God, a creator out there. And we're right in saying that because God is not just the God behind it all, but he is the God in front of you and I. And God wants us to know him in a clear way. And I'll quote Dr. Lucas Massiel, a member and leader in this church, um, and we teach this in our foundations course, but this is what he has to say very wisely, I think. At the very center of Christianity is a God who speaks, not a God that we make ourselves, but the God that made us, not a God that we choose for ourselves, but a God who chose us for himself, not a God we discover by our effort, but a God who reveals himself to us. The initiative is always on his side. Because of that, Christianity is a faith of response. God always initiates our turn to respond. God has initiated again and again and again. And so it's not that the gods have come down to us in human form, but God has come down to us in human form. And his name is Jesus. And we can know this God through his written word, scripture, but through his living word, Jesus. And so AI may get to the place where they know everything about everything and hence they're God. But how do you know what God is like? You look at the life of Jesus. How do you know what God is like in treating people who are different to him? You look at the life of Jesus. How do you know what God is like when people mistreat him, abuse him? You look at the life of Jesus. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we see a God that's come to us in human form, both in extraordinary ways and in very ordinary ways. This was unthinkable in that time, perhaps even still a little bit challenging in our time, but unthinkable that a God would take on human flesh, how degrading in that time, the mentality was everything is escaping the material world. Everything is escaping this flesh. To be spiritual is to escape, to transcend this fleshly domain. And now you're saying God went the opposite way? Yes, because material, your created flesh is not the problem. God's creation, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Creation isn't the problem. Your human humanness is not the problem. It's the fallenness of creation, the fallenness of my humanity that's the problem. And that's what Jesus came to fix. Miraculously took upon our human nature, except for the sin part, and lived a way to show us what it's like to live in complete harmony with God, how you and I were created to worship, to be in relationship with this living God. Not just to give us an example, but to mend the way back for you and I to have that living relationship with God. 
And so Jesus reveals to God to us in the most clearest way. God has come down to us in human form. And also what Paul does in this passage, it's really cool because they're, they're blown away because they've seen a miracle. Rightly so. I think you and I would be blown away. We should be, right? If you knew someone in your village, your town, your city, your neighborhood that was paralyzed, whatever, and all of a sudden a miracle happens there, you should have like a, oh my gosh, moment. And it's oftentimes that we think that God really is interested in the extraordinary and spectacular moments. And, and you're right, like God is involved in the extraordinary spectacular moments. But Paul says, but hey, this same God, he's behind weather patterns. He's behind your harvest. He's behind the rain he sends, the food that he provides for you. What is he saying? He's in the ordinary as much as he's in the extraordinary. God's with us here today, right? We're here. We're God's people gathered to worship God. God's as much in your life on Monday morning. I know it doesn't feel like it. Maybe after the second cup of coffee, existence of God becomes a thing to grasp. I'm, I'm a second cup of coffee atheist. Until that second cup of coffee is like, okay, I think God is, is real again. Wednesday afternoon, when you had that really challenging meeting or class or whatever it is, God's still as real there as he is right now. Um, and that should be really encouraging. I, I can't say it any better than Eugene Peterson, so I'm just going to read what he says about this. He says, the same God who healed the crippled man also sends the rain. What the gospel does is make the miracle routine and the routine a miracle. This means that in your life, miracles are always a possibility. God isn't limited to your imagination. He's not confined to your routines. He's not reduced to the commonplaces of your life. He can and does break through into your life in surprising, unexpected ways. At the same time, he's never excluded from the commonplace. He's never absent, even when things seem most humdrum. He's here to be praised, obeyed, and celebrated in the ordinary, as well as the extraordinary. I love that. Don't you love that? We sang a song that told us that God goes before us. God goes before you into that classroom. He goes before you into that workplace. He goes before you onto that TTC, praise God. He goes before you in your life. He's with you in the common places, in the humdrum, not so extraordinary things of paying bills, taking care of young kids, trying to figure out a romantic relationship. He's involved in our lives if we have eyes to see it. And this is the kind of God that we serve. Yes, this God is transcendent. Yes, this God is beyond our imagination, worthy to be worshipped. What blows our minds with the Christian God is he just took that transcendence and came to earth. He walked amongst us. You know, from the ages of 12 to ages of 30, we don't hear much about Jesus. Doing a blue-collar job, he was a worker, carpenter. Think of the value that he gave to just working a job. And then three years of ministry, amazing ministry, miraculous ministry, but you've got to look at his life in its entirety. It's not just like, hey, those three years were spectacular. Everything else was just training. Like every part of his life was worship to God. Every part of your life, every part of my life can be worship to the living God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then we're going to go into a time of song. It will be a video song, but I'll invite you to stand and, um, and allow just God to speak some more into your heart. So maybe something specific that he wants to do in your heart. But I want to pray, Father, I pray today, I pray this week 
that us as your people would find you in extraordinary, surprising ways, God. God, we want to be open. If you are a God who can break in to our routines, we say break in, God. If you are the God of the miraculous, would you perform miracles in and through our lives, God? And yet, God, we don't despise the day-to-day routines. God, may we find you in the mundane. God, may you even take and help us rethink through the mundane to see everything can be a way to join you in this world, to see you as not just the God behind it all, but the God in front of us, the one that leads us. And I pray, God, as we... um, as we long to worship, would you direct our worship to you, God? But would you convict our hearts? Would you even illuminate, even here today, God, maybe things that have grown too important in our lives, that are rivaling that God-shaped vacuum, and that we know because it, we know that it's just never going to bring about the full satisfaction that our hearts long for. And yet you, God, you've come down to us in human form. What our hearts truly long for is right before us through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.